throughout our lives from beginning to end, we find ourselves receiving instructions of various types from people. And with those instructions, we're faced with the question, will we listen to those instructions? Will we obey them? As children, we begin our parents telling us, don't do this, do this instead, don't touch that. And as kids, we face the question, would we obey? Would we listen? Would we do what our parents said? If you like to have the shared experience of sitting on an airplane, the flight attendant said, please, everyone, give me your attention for these very important instructions. And then no one listens as they give us actually really important information about how we could stay alive if the plane went down. And yet no one seems to listen. Our doctors give us instructions. You should stop doing this or you should start doing that. You should remove this from your diet. You should add that. And we face the question, will we listen? Will we obey? In the middle part of the country where I grew up, once or so a year, you might hear instructions from authorities saying, take cover from a tornado now, soon, or you could die. It's a life or death situation And you face the question, will you listen? Will you obey? And so it is as we relate to God. We regularly face the question, will we listen to God? Will we obey him? And it's so very tempting in every area of life and also as we relate to God to listen only selectively. To obey, but only in part. And today we'll see that very real temptation It's danger for us and also more. So if you have a Bible, turn with me today to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can find 1 Samuel 15, the Bible's near you on page 237, page 237. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app so you can see the passage in front of you as we work our way through this chapter. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 15. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout our time together today. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a sign there that says free Bibles. Please, follow the service, grab one of those Bibles and take it with you this morning as our gift to you. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And we've seen how God's people, the people of Israel, desired a human king. God had been their king, but they said, we want a king who, would, who will rule us and lead us like the nations around us. And God had warned them of what that would mean, but in time he had given them a human king, King Saul. Saul was anointed, and we've seen across recent weeks the ups and downs of Saul's life. And progressively, more and more downs than ups, as there's been a spiral downward in Saul's heart and his life. We'll see all of that come to a head this morning. So 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, 
Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen for the sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord 
Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Listen to and obey all the words of the perfect saving king. Listen to and obey all the words of the perfect saving king. And we'll look at our passage in four different scenes. So first we'll see instruction. Second, we'll see disobedience. Third, we'll see confrontation. And then fourth, separation. You may be wondering to yourself, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Why this text for today? About Tuesday, that same thought crossed my mind. I thought to myself, who chose this text for today? Except it was me, so I can blame no one except for me. I think we'll find this text to have much for us as we do the work together. So first, we see instruction in verses 1 to 3. Samuel, who has played the role of prophet, judge, and this priestly role as well, came to King Saul. And he reminds Saul that Samuel has anointed him as king, but not simply as a king, but as a king of God's people, the king of Israel. And so the king of God's people is to live in obedience. So he says to him, verse 1, Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Now this would seem to be self-evident that he wouldn't need to be told this, but it is necessary because we've seen Saul again and again not obey the Lord or partially obey the Lord. And oftentimes just choose sheer rebellion against the Lord. But what does it mean? to truly listen to God. What we see is that truly to hear, truly to listen is to obey. So when Samuel calls Saul to listen to the words of the Lord, he's calling him to appropriately hear and obey the instructions, the commands, the word of God. Now, what is the particular word of the Lord here? Look down at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now these words are startling to us. And if we hear them, they make us uncomfortable. They make us squirm. But in order to try to rightly understand this, we have to consider several things. And first is, who are these Amalekites called Amalek here? Well, they're named for Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau. And this people had a long history of violence against the Israelites. When the Lord brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, so God delivered them, brought them out, the first human attack they faced, the first danger they faced from humans was from the Amalekites. 
who brought an unprovoked attack against God's people. Moses records it this way in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So the Israelites have been delivered from slavery, but as they're making their way out in time, they're, they're weary, they're worn down. And this nation, the Amalekites, come and attack, but they don't attack them from the front. They don't directly attack the strongest of the Israelites, but we're told they attack from the rear, attacking the weakest of Israel. So therefore the oldest and the youngest, the elderly and the children killed by the Amalekites. Sadly, this was not a one-time encounter with the Amalekites. These people were committed as enemies of God and of his people. And we see several times across the history of God's people where again and again, the Amalekites come and attack. The book of Judges that, that precedes 1 Samuel immediately before it, there multiple times we see the Amalekites again attacking God's people. So we must see that what is happening here is not random. But this is a group who across the generations has opposed God and attacked his people. This also fairly is not some rash or impatient act. They've had 300 years to admit they were wrong, to, to repent, to turn to God. So God has patiently given them generations to turn, and they haven't. And what is happening here is an act of divine judgment. God has here sovereignly decided that this nation, who's been marked by consistent evil, brutality against God's people, and have rejected God, would now in this moment face justice for what they had done. I want to be clear and understand this. This is not an act of divine judgment directed towards all the nations. And it's not random. If just a random person came across it, that they would be attacked in this way. But it says one particular people. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, Saul warns this people, the Kenites who lived among the Amalekites. And he said to them, you should leave. You should come out of there so we don't attack you. So this was directed only at the Amalekites. But we should also know that this punishment potentially was not only for the Amalekites, but God had prescribed in Deuteronomy 13 that even among his own people, that if there were cities of God's own people who persisted in rebellion, in the worship of other gods, this same punishment would fall on them. So friends, God is just, and there is, there is no partiality in his justice. We admit, though, that even with that, from our vantage point today, this is hard to read and to consider. In fact, texts like this have led some people to try to just ignore the Old Testament completely. Or for many to say, well, the Old Testament is, is unhelpful at best or unnecessary. I think the challenge with that thinking is the entire New Testament draws from the Old Testament. Jesus and the apostles who are inspired to write it again and again and again, draw from the scriptures, see them as authoritative, see them as the very word of God. Jesus himself quotes 
in the Gospels from this very chapter. So Jesus is quoted from 1 Samuel 15. So he doesn't seek to distance himself from this. Friends, this text should help us to see and feel the weight and the seriousness of sin and the reality of judgment, how seriously God takes rebellion against him. Now we see in this divine judgment against this one localized group, the Amalekites, a very smaller scale anticipation of a judgment that is to come for all. The scriptures are clear from beginning to end that there is a judgment coming on the last day and all will face it. And whereas so often in the scriptures is this foreshadowing events that prepare the way for a greater one to come, that's part of what's happening here. Here's a glimpse of judgment that falls on unrepentant sinners as the Amalekites are called here, sinners. And the fact is, all people deserve to face the judgment of God. For that includes me, that includes you, includes every single person. We're born into sin and we embrace sin. Even on our best days, we're prone to wander from God. So the Bible from beginning to end is clear that none of us are innocent. All of us deserve justice. But God has graciously allowed time for those of us who deserve justice to have time to, to turn away from our injustice, to turn away from our rebellion and turn to this God. Now, it's certainly true that significant change has come about through the coming of Jesus Christ. So since Jesus came into the world, things have been reshaped. So for instance, here in this text, Israel is a ethnic group and a geopolitical nation. But now, the people of God are no longer an ethnic group, nor a geopolitical nation. Now the people of God are the church of Jesus Christ. And within this church can be people of every nation and tribe and tongue. All these different ethnicities together in one church. And in the world today, there is not a single nation that this is God's nation. So things have changed. And Christians, we do not fight like this. For we, we're told, don't fight against flesh and blood. But there are enemies in this world, we're told. Spiritual powers, forces in the world. The enemy of Satan and sin are very real. So our fight is not against others. So there's not to be actions like this from God's people now. But there is a judgment to come that all will face. And friends, Jesus himself spoke often of judgment. Sometimes people try to say, well, the Old Testament is kind of all wrath and judgment. The New Testament is all grace. Friends, it's a misunderstanding of both. For the Old Testament is filled with rich pictures of grace. And Jesus himself, the pinnacle of grace, also spoke often of judgment. In our series before 1 Samuel, we walked through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're with us, numerous times we saw Jesus warn of the judgment that is to come. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10 says this, And he, referring to Jesus, 
commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus Christ, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So our risen and reigning king will return and he will judge. So we see instruction. Then second, we see disobedience. Disobedience in verses 4 through 9. We see that Saul gathers his army. They come to Amalek. And as I mentioned, as the Lord's representative, before he attacks, he warns this group, the Kenites, who had lived among the Amalekites. But notice, whereas the Amalekites had attacked God's people, the Kenites had shown kindness to them. And so he tells them, leave before the attack starts. Here we see a, a glimmer of mercy in the midst of judgment. We see verse 7 that Saul defeated the Amalekites. We also see clearly that Saul did not obey all of the Lord's word. Saul and the people had spared Agag the king when they had been told not to. They spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves. Basically, everything they thought was valuable, they kept. And what they thought was not, they destroyed. Unless we think at some level that Saul is exhibiting some level of you know, uh, uh, ethical uh, wisdom here, th- th- this is no compassion he's showing. They're only keeping the things they believe are valuable. And in some way, like he thinks keeping the king Agag is alive. Maybe that will serve him as well. So we see disobedience in verses 4 through 9. But then third, and next we see confrontation in verses 10 through 23. As we see this startling and sobering statement from the Lord to Samuel, look at verse 10. The Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And we'll come back in a bit to this question of God regretting. When we notice that Samuel was angry, cried out to the Lord throughout the night. The next morning, Samuel goes to confront Saul so he finds out where he is. He finds out about his movements. And we're told in verse 12 that, that astonishingly, Saul has built a monument to himself. We've seen previously monuments built in 1 Samuel, but not to people, but to God. Only to God. But here, again, we see the, the depth of the failure of Saul. That he would think somehow building a monument to himself was the appropriate thing to do. Then when Samuel reaches Saul, we see Saul's response. Look at verse 13. Saul goes up to Samuel and he says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. In essence, he's patting himself on the back, saying, I did exactly what you said. I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel responds, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I mean, it's almost... Humorous how ridiculous this picture is of Saul and Samuel trying to talk. It's as if they're trying to talk and Samuel says, I can't hear you. And why? It's because of all these animals. What's the problem with all the animals? They're not supposed to be there. It'd be like, let's say there was a teenager who had a garage band. Maybe in Boston, they're not garage band. Maybe it's a basement band since no one has a garage. So so they've got a basement band with drums, guitars, and everything. And the parent says, today, no one from the band can come to the house. No drumming, no guitar. Today will be a band-free day. So don't think of bringing anyone over. And the parents come back to the house, and they walk in, and they hear the band just playing this really loud music. And the kid comes upstairs and says, I obeyed you. And the parents say, what, what, what are the noise of these drums and these guitars before I break them? What, you know, what is going on there? 
So it is with Saul. He didn't, the evidence of his disobedience is right here. And yet somehow he says, I did all that you told me to do. Saul then begins to try to justify himself by pointing his finger at others, at the people. Look at verse 15. He says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And then he says, well, they have done it in order to sacrifice to the Lord, as if perhaps that would justify their actions. So he says, they've done it. Then he only includes himself when he says, we have devoted some portion to destruction. So the part they were supposed to do, but they're doing incomplete, he joins himself in that. Samuel then interrupts him, verse 16, says, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Samuel reminds Saul that he'd been anointed by the Lord as king over God's people. And the Lord has sent him on a specific mission and he asks him, why didn't you obey? Why did you disobey the voice of the Lord? And Saul has the gall to try to answer verse 20 and say, well, I did go on the mission. I've done it, but I, but I did bring the king back. That's true. But again, he tries to shift to blame, verse 21. But the people took of the spoil and sheep and oxen. The best of things devoted to destruction. And so here again and again, we see Saul Shifting blame, justifying himself, trying to come up with some way to explain his sinful choices. And then we see Samuel's response, verses 22 to 23. And here we, he lays out some very important principles for, for all of the life of knowing and following God for Christians. And this is the portion that Jesus himself quotes. Look down at verse 22. Samuel responds, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So Samuel says, which delights the Lord more? Burnt offerings and sacrifices or his people listening to him and obeying his voice. And he says clearly to obey, to listen is better. Now, if we don't understand the context, and if we don't do some work to try to interpret this well, we can think that Samuel's saying sacrifices are just completely bad. Listening alone is good. But that's actually not what he's saying. For God himself had instituted these sacrifices, these offerings, so God had given these. He had ordained them. So, so Samuel's not saying, don't do the offerings. But he is saying, here's the dangerous part. You could bring your sacrifice to the Lord, outwardly seeming holy and committed to obeying the Lord, but your heart is far from him. But on the other hand, if your heart is right, seeking to obey the Lord, you will bring these sacrifices as an outward demonstration of your inward trust in God. So Samuel is saying what is always true, that God is most interested always in our hearts. And a changed heart will result in outward behavior that lives in line with God's word increasingly so. Notice the weightiness of what it is to not listen and obey. He calls it rebellion, presumption, pride. He says, when you don't listen to the word of the Lord, you're rejecting the word of the Lord. And to notice how serious it is, look at what he compares it to. He says, it's like 
the sin of divination, which would be basically like going to fortune tellers. He said, it's like idolatry. So these are the worst of sins among God's people. And he's saying to not listen is like that. That's how serious this is. Every Israelite would know idolatry is serious. Somehow they're thinking not listening. That's not as serious. Samuel says that. No, it's just the same. So of the most serious sins is for us to not listen, to not obey the Lord. Then there's this massive note at the end of verse 23 to Saul. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, because you've not listened, you've been rejected from being king. Because we need to see this is not only a temptation for Saul, but it's a temptation for us as well. As we face the question, will we listen to and obey the word of the Lord? At points, we may be tempted to say, I I just won't do it. The Lord says to do this, I won't do it. The Lord says not to do this, I'm just going to choose to do it no matter what. Sometimes we're we're that brazen in our rebellion. I wonder perhaps, friend, if there's a way that you're doing that now. You know what God's word says. And yet you're saying, whether you're saying it out loud or not, in your heart or by your actions, I just will not obey God in this area. Often because we're not quite willing to say, I just won't obey, we'll try to in some ways adapt God's word to now affirm what we really want to do. And if we can't adapt it ourselves, we'll try to think through, is there, can I find someone who will do that for me? In our world today, it's often, can I find an author, a preacher, a speaker who will justify what I want to do, will show some sort of adaptation of God's word? It's just always true that to follow Jesus is costly. And to follow Jesus and trust his word will always put us out of step in the culture we're in. Now, that exactly how we're out of step will be different from culture to culture, but it's, that's always been the case. But the challenge, the temptation to adapt is usually, especially where God's word presses on our strong desires. When there's something you really want to do, but God's word prohibits it. So then you want to find, it. Is there, is there someone who will somehow give a rationale why I don't have to obey in that area? Or it's often those areas where Christianity is just out of step with a culture. It's controversial. It's counterculture. And the fact is, I don't think most of us want to be mocked. We, we don't want to by coworkers or neighbors or family members to think we're ridiculous to believe this or that. So again, can I find someone who just has a, a little more palatable message, a little less offensive, someone who would adapt God's word for that? So friend, I wonder where in your life are you tempted or maybe you're down the road of finding someone who will justify what you already want to do. A desire that's strong and God has prohibited, but you want someone and you found someone who will affirm that path for you. Or where's the temptation grade? Because you, you don't want to be out of step. You don't want to be mocked to compromise God's word. 
And like Saul, we're often tempted towards partial obedience, obeying in some areas and disobeying in others. So it might be that you're, you've been struggling with the temptation and the sin of lying. And by God's grace, you've made great progress in that. You've been fighting lying, and yet the truth is you're still embracing gossip. Both sinful, destructive, partially obeying is what's happening. Or maybe for a long time you, you struggle with the sin of envy, envying what other people had, their, their finances, their resources, and you fought against that by God's grace, and you've made progress in that fight. You've been really careful in it. But in your mind, your mind is filled with lustful thoughts. Your electronic device, often now used to display pornographic images. Or you're engaged in sexual activity that God's word prohibits outside of the covenant of a man and a woman in marriage. And where are you currently practicing selective obedience? Yes, progress in some areas, but you know you're choosing not to obey in others. So we see confrontation. And then fourth and last, we come to separation. Separation in verses 24 to the end of the chapter. Finally, in verse 24, Saul gives some level of acknowledgement of his sin. As he says, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. That's not clear with Saul ever if he's truly being honest. Now, is it because of the, he's been told the kingdom's being taken away from him, that he's now presenting himself as repentant? We don't know for sure. But whether he means it or not, his words are true as he says, I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. And we've seen repeatedly, we saw it last week, the power that the fear of the opinions of others had over Saul. He was captive to that. So he asked Samuel to pardon him, to return with him before the Lord. But notice what Samuel says, verse 26, I will not return with you, for you rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. The end of Saul's reign as king is near. We won't see it until the end of 1 Samuel, but it's coming very quickly. Now we see a heavier judgment for Saul because of who he was. He was the anointed king of God's people. Of all people to know and follow the Lord, it should be this one who is both a, a, a governmental leader, but also a, a spiritual leader. But he continued in this pattern of disobedience and rebellion. We see that because Saul hadn't, Samuel then carries out the task of giving the death penalty to King Agag. Agag, who was a horribly unjust king. As Samuel remarks, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. So this king also would not escape divine judgment. Now, as we read the text, as I mentioned, we see three instances here where God regretting or not regretting something is alluded to in the scriptures. We're told verse 11 that he regretted making Saul king. Then verse 29 that the Lord will not regret. But then again, verse 35, the Lord has regretted. So does God regret? And what we see is that of our sovereign God, that he does. 
And we want to admit, we don't know all that that means. And because of how different God is from us as the the sovereign, creating, sustaining, all-knowing God, however he regrets would be different from our form of regret. Where we all, I too, have many regrets in life. Where we'd say, if I could go back, I would do that differently. I'm sorry that I did that. That was a mistake on my, uh, that sin was destructive. Those all sorts of regrets that I would have and that you would have as well. That's not the same regret that God is having. For he knows the beginning to the end. He's the all-knowing one. At the same time, as one author puts it, the astonishing thing is that God so enters into his involvement with his creation, in particular with humanity, and even more particularly with his people, that their failures affect him. The Lord was so grieved by Saul's failure to listen to the sound of his words that he regretted making him king. My friends, we relate to this great sovereign God and our own limitations. There are times like this where we look at the text and we say, we're best to admit we're not sure all that that means. And sometimes if we're not careful, the speculative parts of a text can be used to help us avoid where the text is really clear. And so it's worthwhile to wrestle with the question of regret, but don't let it overshadow the question, will we listen and obey the Lord? The chapter concludes as Samuel and Saul go their different ways. They are now separated. Saul the king was rejected because of his disobedient life, and that will open the way to the next king who's mentioned here that we'll meet next week. King David. And we'll see that David will be a better king than Saul in many ways. And yet still, David will sin. He too will disobey God at times. Eventually, though, through David's line, a greater king would come. And he would be a king unlike any other. This is the true eternal king, Jesus Christ the one that we celebrate during this Advent season. Whereas Saul disobeyed, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience from beginning to end. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, and being found in human form, he, Christ, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how full and complete his obedience was. Saul was the king who sinned, and needed someone to pardon him. That's why he asked Samuel, would you please pardon me? But friends, Jesus was the perfect king who came to provide the pardon that those like us who have sinned need. He purchased our pardon. He would provide this pardon as he would go to the cross, the perfect final sacrifice. Friends, that's why we don't bring sacrifices anymore to church. That's why we don't don't bring sheep. We don't bring oxen because Jesus was the final perfect sacrifice to end all of sacrifices. And he would give himself on a cross. He would not pick up a sword, but he would choose instead to lay down his life in a place of sinners like us. So that through that, he would purchase this Reconciliation with God, our pardon for sin, freedom, life eternal, adoption into God's own family, all of that a free gift held out to any and all who receive it by faith. So then what are we to do? Listen. Listen to Jesus. 
as Jesus started his earthly ministry and was baptized, there was a voice from heaven. The voice of God spoke and said, of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Friends, that's the call to us today. Listen to Jesus. And as we listen, we want to listen to all of his words. His words of invitation. As he says to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His words that call us to faith and trust. As Jesus says, believe in me. We also want to listen to Jesus' words as he warns us of a day of judgment that is to come. The beautiful aspect of our king is that he did come to warn, but he also provided the way out through his coming. He's the very means of deliverance from this judgment. So we don't have to face the judgment that we deserve. Jesus has provided the way. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would join us today. I recognize there's a good amount that I probably said today that seems really mind-blowing to you. And there may be lots and lots of questions that you might have, objections that you might raise. It's our hope that you would feel comfortable here to explore those questions with us. So to the extent that you're willing, we'd love for you to come back and join us next Sunday and the Sunday after to hear more, consider Jesus. If you'd like to talk more about those questions, we would love to talk with you. I'll be at the door following the service. If you came with a, a classmate or a family member, they would love to tell you more if they're a Christian as well. As Christians, we also... Listen to his call to obey. Listen to his word and obey his words. And so to trust him, to trust God's word, we seek to trust him with all the scriptures. And for maybe today you're tempted by our text or by previous experience to set aside the challenging aspects of the Old Testament. You're tempted to say, I I don't know what to do with it or I just don't want to do anything with it. I'm just going to be a, a New Testament Christian. Friends, as I mentioned earlier, we will miss out on so much. We cannot follow Jesus without all the scriptures. It is true, the Old Testament says some some startling things about judgment. But friends, as I mentioned, the Old Testament is filled with the, the richest grace of God. Isaiah chapter 55, listen as I read this. You'll see the same call to listen, but listen to these words. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse, verse one. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you're familiar with the passage, those last two verses are probably the most familiar for Christians. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And that's true in so many different ways of our God. 
And first glance for us, we would think the, the hardest thing to believe about God is this idea of judgment that we see in our text. But actually, if we understand ourselves and the world more clearly, what is actually more stunning, more unlike us, is grace from God. This is the way he's so much beyond us that he would, instead of wiping us out, give us grace through Christ. That he would say to sinners like us, come to me. Friends, that's how infinitely different greater, graceful our God is. Friends, don't leave behind the Old Testament scriptures. But how do we listen? How do we obey? For if you've been a Christian for a while, you've tried to obey, and you've fallen short. You've failed, as I have. Well, Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we do not listen and obey in order that we might be saved by Christ. But because he has saved us, he now will help us grow in our obedience. The one who saved us is the one who sustains us. It is God who works in us. He's working as we work. So we work with all the strength that we have to, to listen to and obey Jesus. But the strength that we have is Jesus' strength in us by the Spirit. For he will help you grow in obedience. So for another areas where you're choosing to only partially listen, only partially obey, let me urge you today, repent, turn back to Christ today. Join together in this fight against sin. Let us listen to and obey all the words of the perfect saving king.